Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, September 14th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. On this week's financial show, Citigroup's got a new CEO. Buffett is buying into an IPO. We've got a couple of stocks for you to keep an eye on. And joining me this week, as always, is Certified Financial Planner, Mr. Matt Frankel. Matt, looking like you've uh, gotten maybe a little, you've caught up a little bit on the rest that apparently you lost uh, when you you made the big old uh, the big old excursion down to Disney World last week, huh? Yeah, we decided to take the kids. Uh, it was it was a lot of fun. It's really cool to experience Disney without the giant crowds that you know. If you normally go during the summer, you, you you're, it's like shoulder to shoulder in there. So it was nice to not have to deal with that. <laughs> That's great. How how long were you guys down there? Uh, we spent three days at the parks. It was really nice. We got to do all the rides that we couldn't do when we were in February because you know a, a five year old doesn't want to wait in line for three hours. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess that's right. Now your kids are still young enough to wear. I mean, you're, you, they can't go on like the big roller coasters yet, right? No, my daughter can go on most. There were a few well, she, she couldn't get on. Um, the I mean, the little I have a two year old, and obviously he couldn't do much of anything. But yeah, um, the, yeah, my my daughter's favorite ride there was Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, the the roller coaster. Oh, nice. Yeah, see that. I always thought that was fun. Like when my kids got to that age and they could actually jump on those coasters, that was like. That's when you knew that it was getting serious. I mean, when you're a kid and you're hitting those rides, you know, that's that's when you're experiencing the real uh the real you know, the real the real world, the real Disney World. And and it made me think of um uh a little while back we took our kids to Universal and uh we did a lot of the of the roller coasters there at Universal, which they they have some pretty monster rides there between like the Hulk and the rock and roll one and everything and that, that that was a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed that uh, that period a little bit better than you know Small World and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> no, my daughter preferred the roller coasters to all the kitty rides. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I'm glad you got back safely. Thank you. Uh, let's jump into uh, what we want to talk about this week. And, and first up here, you know, this is this was really this was a refreshing headline to see. This was some good news to see um, in that Citigroup is going to be getting a new CEO here soon. Now, Michael Corbat, who's the current CEO of the company and has been with, with the company for, for a number of years, I think 30-plus uh, decades, um, he is set to retire next uh, February 2021 and set to succeed Mr. Corbat. It will be the first uh, woman CEO of a mega bank here, I think ever, if I'm not mistaken, Jane Frazier. She's been with the company, I believe, for 16 years now. Jane Frazier will be taking over as CEO of Citigroup in February. Matt, this was big news for a lot of reasons. Um, I, I don't think it's really, you know, I think I think Mr. Corbat is is just you know, feels that he's he's had his time and and it's time to move on and do other things. But but to see to see Citigroup. You know, take this step. I mean, it is it is certainly the right time. It feels like to be doing this. Well, absolutely. For one, Citigroup is one of the more progressive banks. I don't know if you you're aware of this, but out of the six largest banks in the U.S., Citigroup's board has the most gender diversity on it. Um, I didn't so that, realize that. So that's one. So th- from that angle, it wasn't totally a surprise. The reason this was surprising was because of how early it happened. 
Uh, Jane Frazier was promoted to president not long ago. And at that point, it was pretty obvious that she was going to be the successor. But Michael Corbett's only 60, which is younger than most other big bank CEOs. I mean, Jamie Dimon's older than Michael Corbett. Um, right. So it was just kind of how early it happened. But like you said, it, the the overall you know climate right now is probably probably had a lot to do with it. It does seem like a very right time in history for this to happen. Um, and she, it, they couldn't have picked a better candidate. I mean, uh, she's had she's been CEO. She's currently CEO of the Global Consumer Banking. She was former CEO of I think their Latin American division and a few other divisions at certain points in time. So it it seems like the right move and the, and the right timing. And she could be CEO for quite some time. She's only fifty three, right? So she could be CEO for. I mean, like I said, Corbett retired kind of early for a bank CEO. She could be at the home for a decade or more if if it's going well. Yeah, and it, it feels like. Um, I mean, Citigroup. I believe this is the the third largest bank in in the the world, or at least the country by assets. Um, it. You know, I remember during the, the the financial crisis. I mean, Citigroup is clearly one of the banks that had a tougher time than most. I mean, if many of you may recall, they actually uh, went through a reverse split at one point, which um, you know at the time was just something they really kind of needed to do. Uh, but but to see that they were able to come out on the other side of that in in one piece and really able to continue building the business was encouraging. Now, with that said, I mean, if you look at the year to date, if you look at the last five years for the stock. Um, I mean, it's it's not. I mean, it's not been a good year, and 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 frankly, I mean, the last five years, you're essentially, I, I, you look like you're essentially flat if you're an over, owner of these shares, um, and so it does. It feels like at least that Miss Fraser has um, a, a a pretty good situation coming in here, in that the the expectations. You know, I mean, Mr. Corbett, for for all of, all that he's been able to do there since he saw the position since 2012. I mean, it, you know, I mean, the, the returns are the returns, and and that's ultimately what shareholders are, are looking at for the most part. And it it feels like at least Miss Fraser's in a pretty good position here um, to to take this company uh, onward and upward. Yeah, and I mean, it's worth pointing out that Corbett's been at the bank for 37 years, but he's only been CEO for eight of those. Right. So he he wasn't in charge during the financial crisis when you like that reverse split you were talking about happened. So it's it wouldn't be fair to blame that part of the history on him. Oh yeah, um, no, no. Since then, Citigroup has underperformed the other big banks, and there's a bunch of factors that go into the returns. Citigroup, a big reason they've underperformed recently is that they are a lot more international than the other big U.S. banks. Um, they have a lot more exposure to um, the European market, for example. Than, than a lot of the big U.S. banks do. So that's that's held down returns a little bit. Um, I can't really make the argument that Corbett's done a bad job um, in his time as CEO. Maybe his predecessors, I can make that argument for. Um, you know, there's a reason that Citigroup really had to do a reverse split and, and didn't perform very well during the financial crisis era. But in the eight years that the you know, current leadership's been in effect, you know, they've underperformed the banking sector, sure. I think I'm pretty sure they've outperformed Wells Fargo, but don't don't quote me on that. <laughs> um, I want I'm pretty uh, sure. I think you're right, but you know, I'm looking at the chart here now as we speak. And I mean, it, it definitely is a close one until you get towards like you, you know, the most recent uh you know, several months, year or whatever where where Citigroup has has been able to sort of uh, overtake Wells, but yet it's not been they, neither neither has been lighting the world on fire at this point. No, for sure. Um, and like I said, time will tell what will happen next. 
like I said, a lot of the, the downside has been because of the bank's international exposure more than its actual lending practices or anything troubling like that. Like, you know, they didn't right. have any giant scandals like Wells Fargo did. Um, they've just, you know, their returns have underperformed, not no shadiness going on there, as far as we could tell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, Citigroup, <laughs> I know, has doesn't have the best reviews for things like technology. Um, Bank of America generally leads on technology when it comes to the big four banks. They don't have the best reviews when it comes to customer service. Um, you know, but I, I, I'm hope I wish her well, and I, I think that her leadership might be just what the bank needs right now. Yeah, it may be, and I'm glad you brought up the the technology and then the service side of things because I mean, when we talk about these these mega banks and you know all of the advantages that their scale brings them. I mean, in, in a lot of cases, it really does still just get back down to basics, right? I mean, banking is it's not rocket science. I mean, uh, the main idea is to, to build a customer base that trusts you and, and do right by them. And, um, you know, all, all banks are in the same uh, boat right now dealing with the current interest rate environment that we have. But, you know, you mentioned technology, you mentioned customer service there. What do you feel like, do you have any, do you have any inclination as to what, what one of her priorities might be stepping into this role early next year. I mean, we will in, in more, in all likelihood, we'll be, we'll at least be looking toward the, you know, the back half of this pandemic stuff. Hopefully we'll, we'll be, you know, coming, coming out of, of the harder times that that is presented. Um, what do you feel like, what do you feel like some of the priorities for her might be for this bank starting in 2021 when she takes over? I'd say cost cutting and efficiency. Um, most bra- most banks, Citigroup included, have giant branch networks right now, and there's a lot of redundancy in the branch networks. For example, I mentioned embracing technology, which is a big efficiency thing. It's not just to yeah. say I have the coolest mobile app. It's because having a cool mobile app saves saves the bank money. Um, yeah. I mean, Bank of America has or um, has said that every te- every transaction done by their mobile app costs them one tenth of what a teller assisted transaction does. So. Yeah. It's if I, I feel like her focus is going to be on efficiency and cost reductions at first and trying to make sure that the bank's running as efficiently as possible, kind of, you know, bring it into the, the new fintech era. Yeah, well, that I mean, that that sounds like that sounds like a, a good idea there. I mean, yeah, bringing things into the fintech era efficiency. Um, that's an interesting statistic there you presented there in regard to Bank of America. And I, I fully believe it. I mean, having having worked at a banking center for a couple of years uh, yeah, you you walk out of there kind of scratching your head a little bit today, thinking, man, you just don't need as much of that stuff today as as perhaps we once did. So uh, we certainly wish uh, Miss Fraser very well, and and uh, we'll be keeping an eye on uh, all of her progress starting next year, twenty one, uh, twenty twenty one. So congratulations again, and uh, hopefully this uh, bodes well for uh, Citigroup shareholders for the coming years. Uh, let's jump into another topic here. Some news that just came out recently. This was a bit surprising, given what we know about Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, Berkshire Hathaway, their general philosophy on things that we've seen throughout the years. Um, the news that Berkshire Hathaway is actually going to be making an investment in Snowflake, which is an IPO that's coming up. Uh, now, the IPO investment alone is is really the, the part that kind of turned i think everybody's heads uh before we jump into that matt real quickly for the listeners what is snowflake exactly well snowflake i'll say it's a company that's not in warren buffett's wheelhouse and 
It to be perfectly honest, way. it's it's not really a company that's in my wheelhouse either. I don't, I'm not a tech guy that much. Um, it's a cloud-based data solutions company. Um, I, I'll, I'll tweet out a, a good article one of our colleagues wrote about the company, but it's a business that I wouldn't understand that well enough to invest in right off the bat. Um, so right. I'm really surprised that Buffett did. But yeah, there, it's a play on cloud cloud data um, is kind of the, the short version of it. Yeah, that's what struck me initially was... It just doesn't seem like the kind of business that's in his wheelhouse. And while I applaud anyone, any investor trying to expand their circle of competence, I mean, I, I, I don't know. For me, this was a bit of a, of a head scratcher. But then you start thinking about it and, and, and seeing, um, you know, how the investing strategy at Berkshire Hathaway has taken shape over the last um, several years with Todd and Ted doing so much there. Um, what do you feel like? This is more Warren Buffett, or this is more Todd and Ted? Oh, it's, it's hands down, it's Todd and Ted. Yeah. Um, okay. So, well, here it's just Buffett himself has actually spoken out against IPO investing. Right. Um, at the 2016 annual meeting, I have this the quote right in front of me. You don't really have to worry about what's going on in IPOs. People win lotteries every day. <laughs> um, so that's one quote. And then in uh, 2019, he confirmed to CNBC that in 54 years, Berkshire's never bought an IPO under his tenure. Um, they came close. Uh, Stoneco, the one that we cover, yeah, he came close. Um, Stoneco went public October twenty fifth, twenty eighteen, and Berkshire bought its stake four days later. So that's pretty close to investing in an IPO. So I put an asterisk next to that statistic. <laughs> but it, it, it the last IPO Buffett bought. Do you have any idea what it was? Um, no, I have no clue. The last IPO Warren Buffett bought was Ford in nineteen fifty six. Wow. So it's been wow. a while. So this is very uncharacteristic for Buffett, which is why I'd say all day this is a Ted and Todd investment. Yeah, that that is fascinating. I didn't realize that about Ford. Now, that certainly seems very much in his wheelhouse, and I can understand that. But um, yeah, I mean, when, when you when you think about Snowflake and what they do, and, and I agree with you in that, I mean, when, when you talk about a you know, any kind of a data analytics company, something involving data, um, it, 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 that's a big world. That's kind of like, that's kind of like security, kind of like uh, internet, you know, security in, um, it's a difficult, it's a difficult industry to fully understand. There is so much involved and it's difficult to fully understand what, uh, the competitive advantages of any, of any one business could be. Now, it certainly seems like there's a, a conviction there and, and the team there feels, comfortable in, in, you know, investing in that IPO. And, you know, interestingly, I saw um, Google is investing in the, so Amwell, which is a a telemedicine provider, um, is going to be going public soon. And it also looked like Google was looking to make an investment in the business um, at IPO as well, separate of the IPO, but but investing in the business nonetheless. And um, so it is, it's interesting when you see some of these uh, businesses that that pursue these markets that are going to be that are going to be increasingly relevant, whether it's telemedicine or data management, big data. Um, I mean, those are those are you know those are parts of the market that are going to become increasingly important. And, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I I guess my only my only concern there is is just like you said, they don't really invest in IPOs, and that's for a reason. I think it's probably for a lot of the reasons that I tend to not invest in IPOs. There's just so much going in there that you don't know about. You need to give these companies a little time to, um, you know, 
get things get things going, right? They get their feet under them and, and live life as a publicly traded company. What uh, I mean, I mean, is there something that, that that has you concerned about this move, or is it going to be something that's relatively you know meaningless in in regard to the actual amount of money that they are investing? Well, they're investing a total of about six hundred million dollars in it. Um, so. Ber- Berkshire's buying $250 million in the IPO as a private placement at the same time. Um, Salesforce, it's also worth mentioning, is also investing alongside Berkshire. So that's pretty good company. Ah, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, that's that's a good point there. Um, and they're also buying a f- about 4 million shares of Salesforce from another an existing investor. So all in all, it's going to be an, a stake of over $600 million. It represents about 2.5% of Snowflake. But by Berkshire standards, it's still a pretty small investment. Right. Um, so I'm not too worried about it, especially, you know, I'm, I'm 99% sure it's coming from Ted and Todd, who are responsible for starting Berkshire's Apple investment, which was really successful. Mm-hmm. They are responsible for the for putting Amazon in Berkshire's portfolio, for buying Stone Co., which has been a very successful investment. Um, so all in all, I'm really not that concerned. These are um, two guys who are kind of, more tech-minded than Buffett is, and the early results have been very impressive. Yeah, and you said six hundred million total, and I, that, what am I? Did they they have somewhere in the neighborhood of one hundred eighty billion? Is that right? They had one hundred forty-seven billion in cash on the balance sheet at billion. the end of the second quarter, and yeah. they Berkshire's actually made some pretty big moves in the past month or two. Um, if you remember, they they bought the natural gas business from Dominion. They um, put another $2 billion into Bank of America stock. We talked about that on the show. Yep. Um, the, the new IPO, they bought those Japanese companies, the uh, 5% right. stakes in those Japanese companies. Yep. So Berkshire's been pretty active lately. And I mean, this is, and and, and that wasn't all Ted and Todd. I mean, the, the Dominion deal, especially, we know was probably Buffett or Munger, so, uh, you know, other Berkshire leadership. Um, same with the, the Japanese companies were, you know, I mean, Buffett was quoted in the press release as as, as that being his investment. So it looks like all around Berkshire's people are just kind of finally seem to be ready to put some money to work. Yeah, I mean, I guess they it doesn't it doesn't sound like they're firing that elephant gun, so to speak. But they are they are taking a lot of little shots there that are starting to add up. It seems like we're uh, every week or so we're starting to see another headline of a new investment that's been made. And um, see, so, yeah, I mean that's great to see. I mean it doesn't need to be an invest. It doesn't need to be an elephant gun. Let's just uh, let's let's see what they're investing in. Yeah, just so, just do uh, something. <laughs> yeah, just do something. Exactly. I mean, well, everything. Uh, anything's better than just leaving a pile of money. I mean, we're not trying to be like Scrooge McDuck here with a giant bin of money. I mean, we we want to put our money to work and and. I mean, even from a shareholder's perspective, if you could take that 147 billion and even earn half the the historic returns of the S and P, it's better than just sitting, leaving it sitting there in cash. From an I earnings concur. perspective, well, and it probably also raises the question: the longer you leave it there, then you know, and I mean, shareholders, just the drumbeat for a dividend just continues to grow, right? I mean, if you're not going to do anything with it, then you know, do something with it. And um, so, hey, at least they're doing something with it, and that's good. I mean, I, I definitely I like the tailwinds in the market that Snowflake uh, participates in. So I guess it'll it remains to be seen whether this is a company worthy of the investment dollars. But certainly seems like Berkshire feels pretty good about it. So I think that it that you know that that should get it on a, a lot of investors' radar. So we look forward to that uh, look forward to that IPO and digging more into Snowflake to see exactly. Um, um, you know what? What the team there at Berkshire sees? Yeah, no, I mean, I'm excited to see where it goes, and I'm, I mean, I'm just more excited to see that they're actually making some moves now, and 
I want to see that $147 billion number go down because it's been a while <laughs> since it's been a while since we've we've seen that go anywhere but up. That's that's very true. That's very true. Well, hey, let's do this. You know, let's, let's wrap up the show today uh, with our ones to watch. We have a couple of stocks to put on investors' radar for the coming week. And hey, you know, may, maybe someone at Berkshire's listening and they catch an idea from us, Matt. We can only hope. Uh, but what is your one to watch this week? Well, everyone knows I love real estate stocks, so I'm sticking with, I'm going to go with a real estate stock I haven't mentioned on our show yet called Walker and Dunlop that I recently oh, yeah. added to my, yep. my portfolio. Nice. A uh, ticker symbol is WD. Uh, if you're not familiar, they're a commercial real estate finance company. They specialize in multifamily properties, so like apartment buildings, things like that. Um, right now, they have about a 6% market share. They're one of the leaders, especially when it comes to government-backed loans like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Um, they have a very ambitious CEO who's delivered great returns for investors in his tenure. Mm-hmm. He's actually the, the grandson of one of the co-founders. Um, you know, the company was co-founded, I think, in the 30s, and he's the he's you know third generation leadership. Yeah. Um, and I mean, the, the the execution has just been fantastic when it comes to acquisitions and growing market share. And um, they, they have a they're servicing. They have a mortgage servicing business as well. And uh, that portfolio just reached $100 billion. And that's just steady, predictable income. Yeah. Um, so and they're they're well off their their highs. And I'd like I mean, they're, I I'm, don't think they deserve the discount they're trading for right now. Yeah, interesting one there. I think Willie Walker, the the gentleman heading up the the operation there. I think that Mr. Walker actually came and spoke at uh, Full HQ at one point. But but uh, Tom uh, Tom Gardner, our co-founder and CEO, and and, and I believe Mr. Walker uh, know each other, and, uh, and and that's been a that's been a company that's been in our universe here at the Full for a while now. So good good to hear you getting that on on your radar. I am going to be taking a look at uh, Adobe. Actually, earnings come out tomorrow for Adobe um, on Tuesday. And so for me, really, you know, this is a business I've talked about a lot on a number of our shows. And, um, it, you know, it, it, Adobe to me is interesting from a number of perspectives. I mean, it's it's primarily, it's really a digital content, digital media company. Um, they have a really, you know, an interesting side of the business and document management. And have always been referred to as a competitor of companies like DocuSign. Um, but, but really for me, I mean, Adobe's real strength stands out in its, in its digital, um, content strategy and, and the, the, you know, the role that, that they serve for so many creators out there, um, a, a subscription model, which is really attractive software companies, super, super margins, uh, just, just love to see those types of margins, gross margins, uh, touching the 90% range in, in, in some cases. And, um, with earnings coming out, I mean, I'm really just curious to see how they see things looking in the near to midterm last quarter. They did not offer full year guidance, but they did offer quarterly guidance. And so we'll see how, how business, uh, comes in compared to that guidance that they offered. And, you know, I, I compared a little bit to another company I follow Autodesk, um, we saw Autodesk's earnings this most recent quarter. They've seen some tightening of budgets around um, around the world. They've been pushing out pricing a bit to be um, as customer-centric as possible, given the challenges that, that everyone uh, is facing out there. Um, so, yeah, it, it's just going to be, I think, a good indicator of, of where we are in this pandemic economy today. Uh, the stock has had a great year so far, up a little bit more than 40%, just a tremendous business. They generate a ton of cash. Um, and and I, I personally own shares in, in it myself. 
Uh, that was one of the positions I built up during the the great bear market of March 2020, Matt. <laughs> so we'll look forward to those earnings tomorrow. Uh, but hey, what's it? What's the ticker symbol again on that one? The ticker on Adobe is ADBE. But I think that's going to do it for us this week, folks. Remember, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus, or you can drop us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. Tell us what your one to watch is. It can be anything. It doesn't have to be financials. You got one that you're watching, one that you think we need to be watching? Reach out to us on Twitter. Drop us an email. Let us know. We'll read it on uh, on the air. Always looking for great ideas, and, and we want to know the stocks that you, our listeners, are looking out for, too. Uh, but, Matt, it is uh, really nice to catch up with you. Glad you guys had such a great time at Disney World. Glad you got back safely. Um, I think we're one step closer to maybe uh, being able to meet each other again at Fool HQ one of these days and uh, perhaps even tape a show and uh, grab a burger and a beer afterwards. I hope so, too. Any word on when that might happen? You know, 2022, 2023? <laughs> Let's hope it doesn't take that long. Let's hope it doesn't take that long, but I'll, <laughs> I'll make sure and keep you up to speed. It's a little while to go, but uh, hopefully not that long. But as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. 